Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome once again, everybody, to Major League Beginnings. Hope you're all doing well. Well, today, Mark and I have a very special guest. He's a former big league slugger. He's Greg Vaughn. And Mark, I know most fans are familiar with your former teammate because of what he did on the field for 15 seasons, but there's really so much more to this man than the all-star games and the statistics. So true, Mike. Uh, the identity for Greg Vaughn, obviously you start looking at the numbers and you, you focus on the home runs and his ability on the field, but every teammate has the ability to resonate with people. He had that, and I felt like it was so important to know that I had to learn from these type of guys. Greg Vaughn was the example all the time, but he learned from a lot of his guys, and you'll understand what molded Greg Vaughn in this podcast. Greg, we do appreciate the time, and we want to start with what we believe is your signature moment as a big league player. The last game of the 1998 regular season, last at bat, you're chasing home run number 50 on the year. You're playing against Arizona. It's a real close ball game. You had been stuck on 49 homers for what seemed to be about a couple of weeks. Walk us through the moment you got into the box. Well, I think it started before that. I think uh, I was stuck on it for like a month or a month and a half. <laughs> and I- uh, I went in the tunnel, you know, like, uh, like right before the ninth inning, like, and I said, you know what? And I basically cussed myself out a little bit and said, 49 is not a bad number. You know, uh, it's still a great year. And then I went up there and then it, it just happened, you know? And then I, and then I think the awesome thing about it was it, it is a team game. But that was special to be one of a few individuals at the time to hit 50. But just to have your teammates' reaction, you know, from Davey Lopes, you know, to Flan, to, you, you know, and in the cross home plate, it looked like the Little League World Series. You know, you don't, you don't see that in the big leagues. So they were just as happy as I was. And uh, I think it enabled us to, or enabled me to relax a little bit more for the playoffs. What a huge moment it was. Uh, only 27 players have hit over 50 home runs, 50 or more. So that puts things in perspective. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a little context because uh, being a teammate of Vonnie's and uh, as a team, uh, we struggled leading up to that moment. And it was an icebreaker. Uh, there were two, two things that happened consistently with our 1998 Padres club. It was Greg Vaughn with big home runs. And we talked about the 50, but it was also the closer, Trevor Hoffman, who would come in and shut the door. And, and that ball game was 3-2. Why I say that, Vonnie, is that when you hit that ball and it was a line drive into the left, left field corner, I've even said this to Mike before. It felt like all of us were in the batter's box with you. And when it went out, it, it, it was just joy, and you mentioned it. It was like a college World Series moment where everyone gets to home plate and they're, and they're excited. We all came out of the dugout to, to, to uh, embrace you, and, and I, I remember grabbing you and hugging you because it was. It was so special because we know how much you meant to our club, but also what it meant to you. And w- when you crossed that plate, what was that feeling like coming in with your teammates? 
Well, you know, I was 34. You were, you know, I, I don't remember even touching home plate. I just remember seeing, you know, face who we call Joey Hamilton. <laughs> playing, you know, with their arms extended, you know what I mean? And basically running directly in the arms and then picking me up. And uh, it was, uh, it's a moment you'll never forget. You know, it was, I don't even remember, like I said, touching home plate. You know, Vaughn, you're 15 years in the big leagues and four all-star teams and then that 98 run with Mark to the World Series. But give us some perspective on what the 50-homer milestone means to you when you evaluate your career as a whole. You know what? It's, it's, people think it's ironic that I've never Googled myself and I don't really know my numbers. And the only reason I do know my numbers is because, well, Greg Vaughn hit XYZ, Greg Vaughn did this. And it was still not enough, you know what I mean? We didn't win the World Series, but to be able to be in that, you know, that small list of players that have 50 home runs, that's special. But like I said, I've never Googled my numbers. I never played for, you know, numbers are part of it because, you know, that's, you know, you want to secure yourself financially and you want to be able to, you know, provide for your family. But I've, I've never Googled or looked up any of my numbers to this day. Interesting aspect to that is that you you have help. Uh, hitting coach Merv Rettman was big influence on you, um, but also giving credit to a guy that's right next to you that we all watched was Mr. Padre, Tony Gwynn. Could you elaborate a little bit of, of what Tony meant to you, and especially in that 50 home run season? He wasn't a home run hitter. He just hit line, drive all over the, line drives all over the place, but he helped you mentally, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? I think, you know, after eight years and three All-Stars or two All-Stars in the American League, and, you know, you establish yourself over there, you come over, you think you know how to play, and you think you know how to hit. Uh, I think Merv and Tony simplified it for me. And, and even, you know, you can attest to this, Mark, Tony made it even sound simpler than it really was. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think... You know, he, he was a little bit of, he didn't go out of his way, but he would be there if you asked him. So I asked, you know, and, and I think that year of spring training, every day at 6.15, we, me, Merv, and Tony were in the cage, and uh, he put the, the tee on the outside part of the plate and said, let's go to work. And to this day, 98, I probably hit, I, I hit up the tee every single day, but I took batting practice half the time. You know what I mean? Because the, the tee doesn't lie. And if you can't do it with a ball that's not moving, how are you going to do it to a ball that is moving? And uh, the way he explained it, the way we went about our work, it, was, it, it enabled me to understand the art of hitting. And really, for the first time in a bit, my big league career, know what I was trying to do. And it is, his method was simple. But trying to do it, establish it against major league pitchers was tough. But, you know, it wasn't a lot of verbiage. And, and, you know, when I teach kids or help, someone asks for help, you know, we can make it as tough as we want. And, you know, all these guys that have hitting videos, and, you know, everyone's a hitting instructor now. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I know if I thought about all the stuff that they're teaching right now, I probably wouldn't have made it to the big leagues because it would be strike three every time. You know what I mean? Because, and Tony was, he kept it simple. When he moved, you move, and take the swing. 
You know, that's his favorite word. Take the slant. And it'll happen. And, but we did a lot of work. And like I said, I understand it starts with the feet. You know, it's, it's the foundation. Where a lot of people say, oh, he's different because, you know, his elbow is like this. Tony never changed my stance. He never, Merv never changed my stance. We, to this day, it wasn't cha- about changing standards. It was understanding how to hit and how to get ready and prepare to hit. And, you know, and when he moves, I, I had to move. And I had to do it slow and I had to do it quiet. And then a swing said, let's make that sound. You know what yeah. I mean? That simplicity is, is so important. And, and I, I swear by it as well. Um, there was an interesting aspect, and, and this might have been an, a little influence with, with Tony Gwynn as well. But I would like to, you to elaborate uh, because you had a hitting video that you watched every day. And it was positive reinforcement. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Because I thought that was a key to your season. You know what? That's one thing I did do in Milwaukee, but I didn't know what exactly what I was looking for. You know what I mean? Uh, Mr. Winfield, Dave Winfield, another great Padre. When I first met him at 21 years old, he said, hey, uh, first thing he said to me, save your money. Second thing he said, get you a tape of nothing but positive Vibes. You want to be positive. You know, seeing nothing but positive things. No mind drive outs. No, no, you know, no balls that almost went out that a guy made a, a great catch. You know, and so I started that. You know, when I first came up, but as you know, Mark, I Tony was the man that discovered that that established video. It took it to a new level. I mean, I have machines here now, but I, I forgot how to work. You know what I mean? It's uh, mm-hmm. but. I'm a visual guy, and I, we know how tough this game is. You know, when I talk to players, I'm it, it's a tough game. I have two boys that play. It's tough, you know. And uh, so I try to go into it watching nothing but positive things to get myself in the right state of mind so good things will happen. Simplicity is great. Uh, mechanically, you worked on a few things. But mentally, you had that edge, and, and that kind of snowballed a little bit in that year that you hit 50 home runs. And why I say that is that I would always ask you on a tough night because I always wanted to check in because that's how close we were. But I always checked in with you and I said, man, that, that guy was tough tonight. And he goes, you know, and, and Vonnie, you can even attest to this. You would always say, you know what? Tonight was 0 for 4. Tomorrow's guy's got to pay. And I think that's a mental edge that really goes unnoticed in the game of baseball these days. And you had that. You developed it, especially in that year. Speak to that if you could. Yeah, but, you know, I, I, I was fortunate. You know, when I came up, you know, I had uh, Glenn Braggs, I had Mike Felder, I had my locker is next to Robin Young. You have Paul Molitor. You have Rob Deere. Uh, I was fortunate to play with the great Dave Parker, Willie Randolph. And that was the mentality. You know what I mean? If, if you didn't get him today, and that's the great thing about baseball, you know, you don't have to wait seven days. You know what I mean? You, you can have a chance to go back out there and get him the next day. And that had to be your, 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 your focus, your mental approach, because what's already happened is gone. I can't, I can't, I can't chase that 0 for 4, but that 0 for 4 can turn into 0 for 40 if I start dwelling on it and concentrating on it too much. Right? You know, but shoot, I don't know a lot of guys that make their money off of number ones, but you make it off middle relief and you make it off. The other guys, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, somebody has to pay. 
And you know, that's the good thing about baseball. I mean, that's why it's 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 so tough. And now with all the the stats and over <laughs> over stat wise, it's it, it's crazy. It's a tough game to play. And I just think we, you know, we we had to learn how to play before market. You can attest to this. Mm-hmm. We had to know how to play baseball. You know, we didn't look in. We didn't look all over the place. We had meetings. We we communicated. There was always veterans around to tell us and teach us and who we learned from. So it was a way that, you know, you know, for me to see the game now and they've called timeout and see a guy run out there and, and give the outfield a card where to play a guy. We had meetings for that. I mean, I don't baseball wise, I could go watch my grandson play T ball and I could tell you what the first guy did. You know what I mean? I don't need a card. And I can tell by a swing if I need it. To, to move to the right or to the left. I knew, you know, if he was a pull hitter, not a pull hitter. I, I just think the communication level is, was awesome because we learned how to play and talk and communicate amongst ourselves. Even in the outfield, hey, he's late. You know, move two steps this way, move two steps that way. You know, we know if a guy was struggling, you know, he was going to roll over. You know, it was, and, and also we were in tune with our pitchers. It was, hey, I don't have a plus plus fastball, so I'm gonna sink it. Bonnie B heads up, it's coming your way. You know, that's what we did. You know, and not saying we didn't have great coaches, but we communicated our meetings. It, it's so much different than the game now, where these players are so blessed with tremendous talent, speed, size. I mean, everyone's throwing a hundred. You know, and it's uh, sometimes I think it's over. You know, the, the stats have gotten in a way that it's taken away from the game. You know, where guys don't move runners over now. Guys don't, you know, we, we play pepper. If you put everybody on the left side, I mean, I know, you know, my, my strength is not to hit a ball over there, but I can hit a ball to the right side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the, the analytics uh, and paralysis by analysis, you're hearing a lot of that in, in today's game. And you can't fault the player so much because it's the system they're growing up in. But I want to drill down a little bit further into a point you made. When you broke in uh, in 1989 with the Brewers, you have eight seasons with Milwaukee before you're, you're flipped for the first time. But let's focus on that call-up with the Brewers in 89. It was an interesting run for you there. But take us back to the moment you found out you were going to go to the big leagues. Who told you? How'd that story go down? And who'd you call? Well, it, it was interesting. It was, uh, it was definitely not you know, he was a triple A manager in Denver and we were on the road and uh, Duffy, Duffy, I mean, you know, you had myself, Sheffield, Daryl Hamilton, you know, all of us played on those teams. So Duffy, he wrote us and he, you know, cause he knew we could take it. I, mean, I think he knew he wanted us to believe in ourselves. So I was like, man, what I do this time? You know what I mean? So I went to the office and Duffy would have stoic look. Duffy would be like, Bonnie, I, you know, shaking his head. I just want to say, man, get your bags. You'll be in Cleveland tomorrow. I was like, what? So I was like, you know, jumped up, gave a hug. You know, he said, hey, do what you do. And uh, you should have a long major league career. And I don't even, do we have cell phones? I don't know what we had back then, but I know the first thing I did, I was call my mom. That was, that was it. The first call, I had to go to my mom. You know what, what I mean? What was your reaction? Uh, Crying, so happy, you know, just, you know, thrilled because she knew how hard I worked and how bad I wanted it, you know, 
Baseball wasn't even my best sport. Football was. So I gave up football to play baseball to prove a lot of people wrong. And then to make it to the big leagues was, uh, I think, satisfying for both of us. But it was a way for me to be able, like I said, once again, to be able to help my family and provide for, you know, my mom, my brothers, and my sister. Bonnie, what's it like for our listeners walking into your first major league locker room and, and seeing that jersey? What did it mean to you? Well, I tell you what, it, fortunate enough, you know, I, I was a first-round pick, so I got to play a lot of spring training games, got to know. Those guys were really, really humble. They made it easy. So I, I, it wasn't like I was walking in here and people, you know, noses were up in the air. You know, I think it was like a – you know, little guy, you know, Johnny Adams, the best trainer in the world. No yeah. doubt. Oh, my man, Bonnie's here, man. Let's keep a golf flat. <laughs> and then everybody saying congratulations. But to actually walk over in Cleveland, that was a mistake by the lake back then, too. You know, so it was, uh, uh, I, it could have been anywhere. It could have been San Quentin. I would have been happy. You know what I mean? It was just one of those things where. <laughs> You can't describe it. You cannot describe the, the feeling that you have when you look up and you see your name. You know what you see in spring training, but in the major league clubhouse. And, you know, they always put me next to Robin. You know, it was like a big brother to me. And uh, it's something I'll never forget. You know, once again, you know, sitting in that chair, you know, you don't want people to see your emotions. So you cover up your face, you know, and try not to. Be too emotional, and then uh, and then you're the mock of all jokes once the stretching starts, <laughs> you know. But so that's how it is. Vonnie, uh, I have three older brothers, but none of them are named Robin Yount. Uh, what was that like? Uh, because we're not talking about a guy that is a run of the mill baseball player. He had a lot of clout in the game of baseball, and you said he was very special to you. How? Robin was a superstar. He was there at right up. Hey, you walk across the stage in high school, next you know you're in the big leagues, you know? I think it was good for me because I got to see one of the best players in the game go about his business. And there was one way to play, and everything else was wrong. And he didn't show you up. He did not make you feel like you, you, didn't, you weren't valid or deserved to be there. He, he treated you – he treated me – like a son, you know, his son wore my number. That's how close we were, you know? And I'm like, you know, where my son or your daddy's number? I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, and it, it was, he, he just, they, they just took me in. The ultimate compliment I could ever say I've gotten in baseball was for Robert. He said, you could have played back in our day. And, and that's something that I, I respected because I, I, I played for, you know, for my family, for my team, for my city, but I also played for the respect of my peers. And for Robin Young to say that to me, everything else, it didn't matter. Greg, I want to stay on that 1989 uh, call-up season and your debut in August. You pick up your first hit August 11th against Cleveland and your first home run, one of what would be 355 major league home runs, comes August 17th. Does one of those two milestones stand out to you more and why? The hit or the homer? I think the I think they're both they're they're both significant because one was on the road and one was at home. So I think that the hit 
Once again, I'm telling you, I, I, I played many spring training games, but that first at bat, I mean, I literally, my leg was like, I was so nervous. My leg was like bouncing off, off the, you know, like I had a toe tap problem, you know, before a toe tap, you know what I mean? It, and I think I hit the first pitch about two inches above my thumb off the first base dugout wall. I mean, uh, first base dugout, which was our dugout. And I look at the shortstop, Espinosa, and the pitcher, they started laughing. I was like, all right, here we go. Hell no, here we go. Let's go. And then that that that's, that woke me up a little bit because they were actually laughing at me like, they're like, who's this bomb? You know what I mean? <laughs> and I was like, so I think that was the only day that I ever had a perfect bad average. I think it was three for three after that, and all downhill from there. Bonnie, one of the cool aspects of your first year is you start seeing your rookie card, and fans have it; they have it signed. Did it have any significance for you knowing that your your image was on a rookie card? Yeah, and I think I think I think I was the player of the year or co player of the year of my two years in the minors. So I had baseball cards, but to get your you know to have it with your Real uniform, knowing that you're in the big leagues, I think it, it made a big difference. You know, when people, you're going to different cities, you're going to different places, and people are recognizing you and saying, hey, you know, Greg Mon, can you sign this? Can you sign this? I mean, it was, it, it's still awesome to be able to be recognized and for your hard work and your dedication to the game. And I watched how, you know, some of the older players and the people handled it. So I, it prepared me how to handle it, you know, and, uh, but, you know, we used to put them in our bikes to make noise, you know. With the, with the, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, with the exhaust. So now to have those of yourself is uh, pretty special. Eight memorable seasons in Milwaukee. And as you talked about, you're breaking in with a couple of Hall of Famers and Molitor and Yount and some other special players. 1996 rolls around and you're traded for the very first time in your career to the Padres from Milwaukee. How'd you find out you were traded and, and how did you take that news? Well, it was, it was unique because I think at the time I was the elder statesman in Milwaukee. You, you know, uh, they, it was during BP and it was during BP. And I think I heard a fan in the outfield said, Bonnie just got traded in a big Bonds Valley sign out there. They ripped it down and, and they were mad. And Bill Garner called everybody in and uh, asked me if I wanted to say anything. And I think that's when the emotions, the tears flow, the, you know, you know, my boys, Jaha, Mistache, just, you know, just, this is all I do. You know, I robbed it. But once I saw Paulie get traded, I knew anything could happen. But in the eight years, you get drafted behind, you think you're going to stay there. That's going to be your place. Forever. And unfortunately, it wasn't, but the people there still remember me. They still treat me good, you know, uh, doing fantasy caps and stuff like this. I had a kid come up to me he's, uh, this last year, and uh, some of these guys are older than me. So I'm like, hey, how old was I when I, you know, how young were you? And they go, I didn't go to summer camp for two days because they, they traded you. We heard it on the radio. My mom had to turn around. <laughs> Another guy said I had the A from Bonds Valley sign that was torn down. You know, and he brought it to he brought it to uh, fantasy camp, and I signed it. But you know, that's 
it was weird. That's all I knew. And then I, you know, American League, National League, and then they, you know, you get over there. And I knew, and I knew other players because you play against them in spring training. Sometimes you have the same agent. And uh, I had eight years in the big leagues, two All Star teams by then, I think. And they, uh, I get the first game. I remember I'm downstairs waiting because I don't know where to go. And I'm waiting for a, ta- uh, a car to pick me up, and I see the umpires, and they say. Hey, congratulations. Welcome to the big leagues. I was like, huh? Welcome to the big leagues. I already got eight years in. So they absolutely treated me like I was a rookie again. The strike zone, everything was different. It was like, this is the craziest thing I've ever saw in my life. You know what I mean? It was, I had eight years in. I see the guys in spring training, and they tell me, like, I just got called up. You're going to have to swing at this. You're going to have to swing at that. And I probably got kicked out a few ball games back then, but... <laughs> You know, because I had eight years in the big league, so it was, everything was different. You know, how to enter a clubhouse, what to say, when to speak up, when not to speak up. You know, it's Tony's team, and you just want to be part of the team. You know, you, you know, make sure you don't say the wrong thing. Learn to new coaches, learn to new teammates. You know, it, 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 was, it, it was different. And then the expectations, you know, from the fans and, and your new organization. So anyone that's never done it, been traded before it, 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 it does take an adjustment period. Vonnie, to put it in perspective, uh, you were an all-star in 96 when you get traded. So you go over there to San Diego, and you, you mentioned it, it is Tony Gwynn's team, but also there's another Hall of Famer in left field, and you're supposed to platoon with him in Ricky Henderson. You're both right-handed. I don't know about platoons and how they work, really, so to speak, but two right-handed hitters doesn't sound like a platoon to me. So to me, that had to be frustrating. And I think fans need to understand when you get traded, I don't think you're prepared for uh, what's next. You just try to focus on, hey, I got to be my best self where you are right there. And then you deal with that aspect. And why I say that is in 97, through struggles and frustrations that you were probably enduring, Kevin Towers, the late Kevin Towers, set up a trade for you to go to the Yankees. And that Yankees trade uh, didn't, it fell through. It didn't go through. And the reason why I say that is that here you are and you got Ricky Henderson. You don't go anywhere. They end up trading Ricky Henderson later, but the trade was for Mariano Duncan and Kenny Rogers, and you were going to the Yankees. And that trade doesn't happen. Tell us why. Part of it was probably my fault, too, you know, because they asked me, I was just honest, they asked me how my shoulder was, you know, after four rotator, three ro- rotator cuff surgeries, shade bone at the time. You know, he says, it doesn't look like your left shoulder. I said, you must be a pretty good doctor. You're right. You know what I mean? It's, it doesn't feel like my left one either. But anyway, uh, does it ever bother you? So I answered, yeah, it sure does. Sometimes it does. You know, I don't take infill because... I have to basically save everything I have for the for the game. And uh, so with me saying that, you know, they vetoed the trade. And uh, I remember coming back to San Diego, and I got on a bus. And once again, there are my boys and my teammates applauding and cheering, you know, running to give me hugs. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a tough couple of years because, I mean, you go from hitting 40 home runs, an all-star, traded. Ricky Henderson, who's one of my good friends and guys I looked up to as a youngster, but not only did we develop a relationship, 
you know, we were super, super tight, as you can attest, Mark. And then mm-hmm. we're doing it. And you're talking about one of the, to me, one of the top three, four baseball players of all time, all time, in Rich Anderson game. You know, when you talk about somebody who can control the total game, I don't know if anybody, well, Willie Mays, you know, Barry at the time, but I, I, don't, I don't know. I think Ricky, you know, if he pulled for me. I pulled for him, but it was just something I'd never done before. You know what I mean? I hit third every day since I signed the major league contract, and I'm for two. And then you come up, it's something I could give Mark and, and Moda and Lenny Harris and all those guys could afford. The hardest job in the world is a good shit. So now here comes the closer. Bonnie, we're down by one. Go hit a home run. I'm like, I'm taking pitches like I got, you know, three or four more at-bats. It's something I never experienced before. So getting traded uh, and during the platoon, it was tough. But what made me, I think, embrace it, the whole situation and keep it a positive was my teammates and Bochy. Bochy always told the truth. You know, and that's something I respect. You know, hey, I want to play both of you guys. Hey, I'm, you know, we're trying to move. When, we, when it was time to move, Ricky's fine. We're trying to move them. And me and Ricky understood that. We understood that it was a unique situation. But at the same time, I was not going to make it selfish and, and make it about me, even though I would love to have 600 plate appearances. Would I love to gotten out of there? Yes, probably. But at the same time, I love my teammates. I love the city. I love the fans. You know, it, it was a great place for me to be. And, uh, you know, off days, I got to fly to Sacramento, like up and down, you know, got to see my kids and family a lot more. So it was, it, it, it was tough. It, it, it was a tough couple of years, but it was all worth it. You use the phrase unique situation. And I think that really encapsulates your time in San Diego, because as you talked about the trade ups and downs in 97, 98, we just talked about 50 home runs. Your team goes to the world series. Here's a unique situation. Give me the list of men in this game who hit 50 home runs, go to the world series and then get traded in the off season, which is what happened to you after 98, you and, and Mark packaged in a deal to go to the Reds. At that point in time, and I know, Mark, you've got a vantage point on this, but I'll start with you, Greg. How did you assess that going down? Was it expected? What were your thoughts? No, and I thought I did everything I could do to stay, and I would have took less to stay. But once again, the whole time there by management, I never felt like I was wanted. You know what I mean? By, by when I say management, I mean upper management, not the Morris family because they always treated me awesome. But I'm just saying, you know, from general manager to vice president to all the, I never felt like they wanted me. But Tony, you know, for my teammates, to Bochi and the coaching staff, uh, the fans, and two days prior, you know, the Lake Camp Towers said, Bonnie, you're not going anywhere. Spring training is right around the corner. I said, no, when they say you're not going anywhere, that means you get paid. You know what I mean? So, you know, and the way I found out wasn't even from KT. It was Marsha calling me about 5 o'clock in the morning. 
telling me that I have to shave off my goatee, and I thought it was a bad, bad dream. That was interesting, Ivani, because, uh, listen, this is a facial hair policy for the Cincinnati Reds since 1967. So you're thinking about history and all of that aspect. I'll do, I will touch on this, too, uh, being involved with that trade. Uh, I w- hey, listen, a player like myself, you just go. But I-, I was disappointed that the city of San Diego didn't get to see you continue to play in that uniform because I knew how important it was and you, de- you developed a love affair, but you take your talents to Cincinnati and here's a guy holding on to your back going over in, after a World Series opportunity and I'm going to Cincinnati with you. I knew what Cincinnati was getting. They had Barry Larkin, a, a, a Hall of Fame shortstop already, but they needed a little more attitude and that's the reason why they went out and acquired you and you were a huge influence on a lot of people there. Sean Casey, uh, we had Aaron Boone on our podcast. He talked about Greg Vaughn was a major influence in my career. So you understood there was Mike Cameron, Jeffrey Hammonds, a lot of people that needed to learn from you. And this was a time where you were able to lend all that information from all of those guys that you mentioned, and you could give it back. You could pay it forward. How did that make you feel? That made me feel special because, you know, once again, you know, I was the first player ever to hit 50 home runs and get traded. So, but that's the first time I ever heard Tony Gwynn actually speak out against something he didn't believe in. You know what I mean? And uh, that made me feel special. The fans, with, you know, they, they showed their frustration and disappointment. Uh, but to go to another organization, and if I could do it all over again, Mark, you know, I would say I would have shaved my goatee out of respect for all the former players that donned that Cincinnati Reds jersey before me because the big red machine and all those great players that they had, I should have done the right thing and shaved my goatee. But I, it was 1999. Uh, I didn't see what my goatee had anything to do with me playing baseball. I was probably a little bit upset at San Diego for trading me after they said they weren't going to trade me. Uh, it was, it was, it was just me. I don't know if I was trying to rebel, but I just really didn't. You know, I'm a California boy. You know, the world of protest. That's what we do. We, if it doesn't make sense, you know, we have to try to find out why. You know, and. Uh, it was big because, you know, I, I said I wasn't going, you know, and the fans in Cincinnati said, you know, it's time for a change. And Ms. Shot, she, she changed the policy. And I have to admit, now you can probably attest to this, Mark. Our, our team in San Diego and all the teams I played in Milwaukee were awesome and fun. But Cincinnati that year might have been one of the most funnest years I've ever had in baseball in my whole entire life. But you talked about, you, like you said, Dimitri Young. Jeffrey Hammers, Mike Cameron, Casey, Boney, uh, all the young, young pitchers we had. And we weren't expected to do anything. And we ended up having that one-game playoff because we couldn't get it done in Milwaukee at the last, you know, the last series of the year. And uh, something else that all, you know, just Boney, uh, Case, Cam, Dimitri, all those guys said, you know, once again, here I, I had 47, 48 home runs that year. Now I'm a free agent, Dave. They didn't resign me because I wouldn't either. Greg Bond, King Griffin Jr., 
I'm taking Junior, you know, best player in baseball, you know, and uh, I wish there was a way both of us could have played on that team, but they said, you know, they go, we go from first place, now they're in last place, and they go, what's, this had the best player in the game, what's the problem? They said, we miss Bonnie. He had us ready to play every single day. You know, and you know what, Vonnie? Uh, 95 home runs in two years. You had 45 in a Reds uniform. Uh, interesting aspect, that, and it's, a, it's an inside story that I think is pretty important, and it gives perspective and why I want to tell it is from mine. Uh, you just hit 50 home runs, and we went to the World Series in, in 98, as we alluded to. You're hitting 45 home runs for the Reds, and we're, we have a potential to go in the playoffs. There, there's a common denominator here. But an interesting story. We had a hitting coach there with the Reds, and you had a certain style and a formula that hit you 50 home runs the previous year. We're all creatures of habit, right? So we go into the batting cages, and that's where you dive in. And I spent a lot of time with you, and I wanted to because we had the same mindset of how we could get it done in our individual jobs. And I had a lot of respect of how you went about it. But why I tell this story our hitting coach in Cincinnati to start the year was Dennis Menke. And I, I remember this comment, and it, and it resonates because it, it molded the, the way I thought in the game for a long time. But you come over with 50 home runs, and I'm setting this up, and you have a conversation with Dennis Menke, and I happen to be right next to him. And he said, what, what, do you, what do you like to do? And he said, well, Greg, you said, I'd like to do soft toss from the front to get ready. I've always done that. Dennis Menke, the hitting coach of the Cincinnati Reds, looked at you in the eyes and said, uh, I don't do soft toss from the front. And to me, I was like, uh-oh, uh, <laughs> this can't happen. It's this a- can't happen. And, and you had that conversation. And I remember leaving that cage, and I looked at you, and I know you were steaming. There was some steam coming out of your ears. And, and, you, and I said to you, I said, Bonnie, if he doesn't like soft toss, I will do soft toss to you, and, and you can put one between my eyes. We need you in the lineup rather than myself. But that was an interesting aspect to you because it fired you up. But I think, again, we talked about the edge you had in 50 home run season. You developed that edge as well in that Cincinnati uniform, which you have to do every single year. Yeah, you, I mean, like I said, it's not taking anything or making light of, you know, you know, in sports, we use the term war, going to war every single day or battle. You know, taking nothing away from the military and, you know, the importance of what a real war, a real battle is. But being an athlete, you can't just say, I'm going out there to have a picnic. You know what I mean? You're, you're competing. And it is, when you have a hitting instructor say, what do you like to do? And he says, he doesn't do this. Who's playing? You, you, you know what I mean? It's, so we, we can elaborate and go a little further, Mark. Me and you. Here we are, we have, I'm soft tossing a half the tee. You're soft tossing a half the tee. We're hitting <laughs> off the tee. And we basically take over until senior. I finally got tired of it and said, hey, I'll come be, what do you guys need? You know what I mean? You got very large, soft tossing everybody. You know, we basically policed ourselves and, and, and did what we had to do to, to, to play. You know, uh, we found a way. You know, and I appreciate that about you because – you were somebody who not only was a, a teammate with me in San Diego, but we were like, you know, we saw them. You know what I mean? It was like, mm-hmm. it was one of those things where we can, we went 
to eat together. We went to the field together. We, we you, you know, parts of times you stayed with me. You know, it was just one of those things where we understood each other. You know what I mean? And you were a good person for us to have because you wanted to win. You know what it took. And it wasn't just me. It was you. It was very, it was very played a way that you can't teach. But Barry wasn't, like you said, boisterous. You know, I played hard, but I was the bad cop. You know what I mean? It was, uh, and not to disrespect, because I don't remember disrespecting anybody. You know, it was more of this is the way we need to do it. And, you know, just trust me, the results were happening. You know what I mean? It was a way of leading. And Marty Brunelman, you know, once again, gave me the, one of the best. If you go to his podcast, when he talks about me, he said, Greg Vaughn was the best leader ever in a Cincinnati Reds uniform. And I was like, all those players that they had there, and he didn't say player, he said leader. The way what I expected all of us to do every single day. And, you know, the name we played for, you know what I mean? So, like I said, once again, that's what, that's what I played for. I played for the respect of my, my peers, the city. You know, those people paid hard money. I mean, they deserve to see a guy go out and play hard. You, it's you know? interesting. It's interesting, Vonnie, because you, I knew that uh, as a player, uh, the unselfishness that you played on the field with, and it was all about getting that W. Um, but you, and I, I think the listeners can hear it too. You were Robin with Batman and Robin a lot. You weren't the man, but you became the man in, in, within that locker room. And I think that's an important aspect to your career because sometimes that focus that should have been solely on you getting your numbers and getting that stuff done was dispersed to everybody else around that locker room because you made other people better. Aaron Boone said exactly that. He made me a better player. So to me, that's your identity. Don't you think as, as a player, it, it was what you learned and what you put out there. And that has to feel really good coming from you. Yeah, I, I, yeah, you know, that is something that I think, you know, Robin told me at an early age, I had control over the way I, the, one of the two things that we have control over as players, and that's effort and the way we carry ourselves. You know what I mean? So everything else, you can line, you can line out four times in a row. You can put your pitches where you want to. So you have no control over what happens. But the effort, you have a responsibility to those people and those fans. And to your teammates, and to your family, and to everybody that played a part in your career to play the game the right way. That's why it's hard for me. You know, I'm glad the kids are having fun. I'm glad they're doing what they're doing. But some, I, I, I could even look at the deck out if I was hitting 110 or 210 and, and doing all this stuff, you know, because I got a base hit, hitting 210. Mm-hmm. I'd be saying, thank God I'm still in the big leagues. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, it, it's just it's a different era. Not saying I don't like it. Not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I just think it's it wouldn't have flew on our air. You know? Can you imagine playing in St. Louis, Mark? When you got caught up in? <laughs> yeah, Larusa La would have told me I had to go. I had to go down to to AAA again. That's what he would have said. Learn how to play the game the right way, right? But but what I'm saying is, it's not that this is a bad error. I just think there has to be a way to. And the good teams, the teams that are winning, they have 
ex-players, ex-special assistants. They have players that have done it mixed with the new. You know what I mean? They, 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 keep, they keep the combination of mix, the mixture. There's a lot of bad teams that just go all yes men, no ex-players, no nothing, show up, tell you what you can say, not say, and they're going to be bad. That's just the way you have it. You know what I mean? You, you have to be able to lean on somebody. You have to be able to have somebody that's there that has done it. You know what I mean? You know, I'm in the minor league. I got Cecil Cooper. I got Ben Ogilvy. I got guys like that that have, that can tell, Larry Heisel, guys that can tell me what to expect. You, you, you know what I mean? And th- these guys, they, you know, I, I feel bad, you know, that they don't have that. Especially being a person of color, you might only have one or two, maybe one on a team. I mean, you're out there on the island by yourself because nobody knows what you're used to eating, how you grew up, the stuff that you come from. You have nobody to share that with, no one to interact with. I mean, you feel like you're all alone. So I was fortunate that I played the time when, uh, we had five or six, seven, sometimes eight people of color on one team. And it was, uh, it was a blessing because now I don't even know how you deal with it. I mean, I, I really don't. I, I feel bad for the guys that I feel good that they had the opportunity to play in the big leagues, but I feel bad that, I mean, who's there to understand it because we're all different. Greg, I want to touch on that. I'm glad you brought that up for a lot of folks listening right now. Uh, and it's, it's not clearly a subject that should be top of mind for, you could argue, the last four or 500 years. But you just brought up a, a very important topic, and that's the notion of where are the minority players? Where are the black players? Where are the black coaches? Where are the black executives? Uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and you've done so much since your retirement, what, what are you gaining and what are you assessing from what's going on in the country right now, and in particular, perhaps uh, in a small way, how you think that might impact baseball? Well, once again, I, I don't think you know the Black Lives Matter movement should. We should get rewarded because of that. I think we should get rewarded because we deserve it. You know, not once have we ever asked for anything. You know, we're not asking, you know, to be given this and given that. We're just be asking to be treated fairly. And have the same opportunities that people of non that aren't color have. That, that that's all we're asking. You know, we're not, we're not saying we want anything for free. We want handouts. I learned at ten. Hey, <laughs> funny story. Playing football, my grandmother. You know, all five foot three or four of her said, "I ran a kickoff back. I rushed for two hundred something yards in an all star game, and I cut a screen pass from the quarterback, and we got co MVP." And she, you know, my lips on the ground back then. What's wrong with you? Get your lip off the ground. I was like, Grandma, it's not fair. She said, you made it too close. I said, what? She said, you made it too close. I said, Grandma, I did X, Y, Z. She said, evidently, you made it too close. So until we step, us as a race starts setting our standards higher and outperforming, and, and which I'm not saying we're not in some aspects, but we're not given a chance. I think. We're taking a step backwards. You know, we're, we're, the conversations that we're having, me and you, the market having now, I was having as a young man with my great great grandfather and my grandfather, you know what I mean? The stuff that they had to go through. And now it's 2020. And it, I think 
we're going backwards, but I'm hopeful because at the protests of where we're at and what I see with the millennials and the Generation X, where the you know they they they, they will fight for a cause and, and stand in what they believe, you know, for. But we we need people to vote to make a difference, whatever that is. You know, I'm an independent because I'm not going to be a Republican just because of what baseball has done for me. I still believe in what I believe in. And uh, I just think, like I said, you know, as we started this conversation, we're not asking for anything free. We're asking to be given the same opportunity. At least let our name, put our name in the box. You know, or because I drive a nice car doesn't mean I'm a, 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 a you know, I, I deal with a drug dealer or, you know, I, I rob people for a living. You know, I think society has us, you know, they have this pre notion that anybody that's a person of color, we cannot be intelligent, we cannot be smart, we cannot be successful unless we do bad things. And uh, that has to stop. So, what gives you hope, Greg? these conversations because for so long they've been avoided. I think the conversations they need to be talked about. People need to hear what we're saying. I have, like I said, I have a lot of close friends that they didn't understand until we talked about it. They were like, man, you really do have to have those conversations. This is just what's going on. This is every day. This, you know, I could go out and get my car today and someone could be having a bad day and pull me over because my car is nice. It doesn't like the way I look at them or my response, you know, and it's, uh, you know, so it, it gives me hope to see the millennials, the Generation X, you know, these marches and protests. And I'm not a fan of, you know, tearing up someone's property, vandalizing somebody and, and stealing from people. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm a fan of that, but I'm a fan of we need to, our voices need to be heard. There needs to be change. There needs to be more black executives, coaches, players in the big leagues. And I would say that about any race. You know, if you can play, you can play. It doesn't matter what color you are, but we need to have those opportunities. And, you know, hopefully we'll get to a time where, you know, my faith is, you know, I mean, you, Mark, Mark Sweeney doesn't look like me, doesn't sound like me, comes from the opposite coast of me, and he's my brother. You know what I mean? And that's my guy. And I know he feels the same way about me, too. And that's where we need to get back to. Bonnie, I, I love the fact that, uh, that you uh, voice our relationship because it, it is so meaningful to me. Even when we don't spend a lot of time together, it, all it takes is one phone call, one message, and that. Um, my question to you as a good friend in the communications that you have received from your grandparents, influential people, you've imparted that onto your children, the three beautiful children that you've got to raise. I have an eight-year-old son. I have two stepdaughters. I need to have conversations about equality, about um, all of these factors that you're talking about. What's your advice for people out there that need to have those conversations that I have to have with my eight-year-old son? Well, I, I think, Mark, I think, first of all, we have to implement people of color, all different nationalities and races in their lives because this is what the world looks like. And we also have to say, you know what? I don't care what someone looks like or what they dress like. or it, All that matters is what's inside their body, their heart. A good person is a good person. A bad person is a bad person. And that's how I was raised. It didn't matter what color you were. 
My mom, is, my mom and great-grandparents would say, you cannot like white people because of what they put us through. They said, good people are good people. And I think for you, people to understand is just because our skin color, just someone on their heart, on their actions, just them on their walk and their work and what they do instead of based on the color of our skin. You know, we, you know that's not fair. And I was major league baseball. And like I said, we, we're not asking for anything. You know, we need people of color in the game to make this, you know, America's game again. You know what I mean? We, we, we do. We need to put, but we need everyone in the game. I'm talking about we need people of color because we need coaches that are qualified that aren't getting opportunities. We need executives, guys that are smart enough that aren't getting the opportunity to have these uh, positions. You know, special assistants. We give you know how many how many people of color do we have that are special assistants? You know, we, we you know it's it's different. It's different, and hopefully this time next year we can say we're in a much better place as you know state of the union. You know, for America, you know we can. Uh, but it's going to take work, and you know it's going to take a lot, a lot of dedication from a lot of people and people like you and your kids, and you know fight and come together because. I'll tell you one thing, uh, hatred and racism isn't a something you're born with. It's a top behavior. Greg Vaughn, uh, our guest on this podcast edition of uh, Major League Beginnings. You want to find out more about what Greg Vaughn's doing, you can visit his website. It's gregvaughn23.com, 916 for life, representing the Sacramento uh, area with all of his heart and soul. And let me say, uh, 15 years in the big leagues, four all-star games, uh, a wonderful career. All of it pales it in comparison to what he's been able to do as a man, not only in his time in the game, but clearly, as you hear there, all he's been able to do uh, since leaving baseball as a player. His words really powerful and resonating, I think, with a lot of us here today. Greg, thank you on behalf of all of us uh, with the podcast. Thank you so much for not only what you've done, what you continue to do, what you will do, but for your time today. Thank you. And also, my biggest thing is Bonds Valley. It's my foundation, bondsvalley.org. You know, you can go on there and find out what we're doing. Like I said, over, you know, this pandemic, you know, I was able, to, we were able to feed what, three or 400,000 people in the San, San Diego area, you know, a couple hundred thousand people here. I found, you know, first responders, my restore, one of my companies, you know, giving them guys, uh, you know, uh, keeping them safe with the, the immune system IVs and the vitamins, make sure they're out there fighting for us. So Mons Valley, that's the Mons Valley is, and it comes from, you know, the outfield and living in the valley. It's part of my baseball, but it's part of who I am now. And uh, that's my biggest accomplishment to make leave this place a better place than when I got here. Vonnie, I think all our listeners hear it. Um, I'm proud uh, to be a teammate of yours. I'm proud to be a good friend. And I'm really proud of, of your efforts after a tremendous career. Um, it really speaks volumes to the person you are. I love you, man. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Hey, love you, Mark. Hey, thank you guys for having me. Anything I can do. And uh, I appreciate all you guys. And let's make this world a better place. Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.